Before we get started, just a couple of announcements just to let you know what's coming up. Next week, we will have class here. I will be out of town. I don't go out of town very often, but I'll be out of town, and Chris Flickinger will be teaching on Ephesians. And you'll really, if you haven't heard Flick before, you'll really like him. He's a really gifted teacher. So he'll be filling in for me next week. The week after that, if you've been watching your bulletin, is Easter week. And so we won't have Wednesday night anywhere in the church, uh, any of the things on that week, but we will be in here on Thursday night. They'll have dinner, child care. We'll come in here for the communion story, Maundy Thursday. And if you haven't heard that, I think it'll, it'll really be meaningful to you. And we're going to do it a little differently this year. And so please invite your friends to that. I think it's a story, especially your friends that don't go to church. I think that story will tie the Bible together for them. I just think God's got a powerful story, and hopefully he'll, he'll do something with them. So bring them for dinner, and then in here on Maundy Thursday. That's the week after next. And then we'll pick back up and kind of go on as usual. But watch your bulletin, and you'll see uh, kind of the announcements week by week of what we're doing. But just wanted to give you a heads up of what's happening in the next couple of weeks. We are talking about the book of Ephesians. It's a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to really a city, but also a province, dealing with some really specific issues. And my claim in this series is to show us and make us realize how absolutely relevant that is today. In other words, the issues today are probably as con confrontational and really as controversial as they were back then. So uh, you guys know this, but there's where you text your questions during class. It's also on your handouts. If you have questions, just text them in. Uh, put your credit card number on it, and Laura will be sure to ask it. <laughs> Last time, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, but what we really did was we looked at this question. Are some people destined for heaven and others for hell? Has that been predetermined? And we talked about that because Paul talks about it. And remember, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. And I, my challenge to you was to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's one sentence in Greek, if you remember we talked about that. Several in your Bible, but it's one big sentence in Greek. It's just one of the most beautiful passages. You know, blessed is the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted into his family according to the good pleasure of his will and for the praise of his glory. And then on and on it goes. It talks about how God chose us, Christ redeems us, and the Spirit seals us. You remember that stamp, that lamellic stamp? You know, the idea that the Holy Spirit in you and me is God's stamp that says this person belongs to me. That's what we talked about last time, and if you weren't here, you can watch that on the uh, website, the videos out there, but also I just want to urge you, just reread that chapter. It's just a beautiful passage. Well, in this lesson, we're going to tackle uh, some different questions, and I want you to watch, by the way, as we go into Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's going to use a, a device, a literary device of contrasts. You're going to see a lot of contrasts in here, and I'll point them out as we go, and as you read it, kind of look for that sort of thing. But you'll see him contrasting, for example, let me give you the very first part of this, 
Uh, we're going to move on to a different section, but here's how the chapter starts out. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Well, that's as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. As when you uh, used to walk in the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit of disobedience who's now at work and all the uh, sons of disobedience. We all lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, literally children of wrath. We were children of wrath. And that children's important, because remember what I just said in chapter 1? That we've been adopted into God's family as his children. What we used to be were outsiders. We used to be children of wrath who deserved uh, alienation from God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace. It's purely by grace you've been saved. But you notice in there he starts this out with this contrast of we used to be dead in our sins and God has made us alive. The other thing you're noticing as we go through this, this book is all about what God has done, not much about what you and I have done. And that's this idea that we don't choose God, God chooses us. In other words, we aren't able of our own just total libertarian free will to say, you know, I have no burden of sin, I'm not, my judgment's not clouded, I'm not self-centered, I just decided I'm going to choose God. If it weren't for God, we'd have no chance at all. That's why he ends it with this exclamation, it's totally by grace you've been saved. In other words, can you believe what God has done? We had no hope without him before. So you see that contrast. You're going to see some more as we go on. Then verse 8 and 9, famous verse. This is a great one to memorize. But he's going to talk at this first part about an individual view of salvation. And that's what we've talked about so far. Remember chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And here he says, it is by grace you have been saved, or literally you are saved, through faith, and this isn't something you did on your own, it's a gift of God, not by works, in other words, not by any earning it, lest anybody could boast before God that I saved myself. So it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And he deals with this idea of the individual salvation. And that's a big deal to us in Western Christianity, but it's very misleading. The truth of it is, Jesus Christ died on a cross, was raised from the dead, for you. That's about this true. I mean, it's completely true, but it's about this much of the truth. Very misleading. And to live there, this individualistic idea of Christ came to die for me, that's true, but if that's all you say, then we've really missed the point that it's not all about me. That's what Paul's going to talk about because we sometimes have the idea and this is true, Christianity is very personal, but it is not private. Your faith is intensely personal, but it is not private. It's not just about me and God. One of the questions that we want to answer uh, is this, and this is something people ask a lot. If Jesus brought peace, and you're going to see a lot of that in chapter 2, if Jesus brought peace to the earth, then why is there so much hostility and why is there so much conflict in the world? And that's a fair question. And Paul's going to answer that. But the first 
a step to understanding that is salvation is personal, but it is not private. It's not the only thing going on. Let me show you what I mean. Let's keep going in chapter 2, and you'll see pretty quickly. We're going to talk about the idea of horizontal reconciliation because peace in the world is not conditioned on how at peace personally Terry is. Peace in the world has to do with a very horizontal relationship, how we get along with other individuals, how we get along with other nations, etc. And Paul's going to address this first. He's going to talk about the idea of horizontal reconciliation. He says, now remember that you used to be Gentiles by birth, and the Jews called them uncircumcised people. In other words, you're outside of the covenant, you're not special to God. In fact, he doesn't even really like you. He likes me best. How many of you had a sibling? Okay, don't raise your hand. How many of you had, because your, your brother or sister might be here. How many of you had a sibling that you just knew your parents liked them better? Uh, well, okay, my hand's up, so I'll tell you my story. I don't think my parents liked my sister better, but let me just tell you what happened to me, and I think you'll agree with me. This wasn't fair. When I was young, she was like a couple of years younger than I was, and she went through a phase, I know a lot of kids do this, went through a phase where she lied about everything. She lied just for the fun of lying. I mean, she's not very old. No, I'm not trying to malign my sister's character. She's probably, what, 17, 18? No, I'm just kidding. She was maybe three or four years old, all right? She would lie about everything, and she would tell mom that I did anything wrong, that happened wrong. She'd say, I did it. And it would infuriate me that my mom believed her every time. Now that tells you one of two things. Either I had a very, very bad track record, which I admit could have had a record there. But secondly, that it was just very unfair. And so I grew up thinking, you know, for a couple of years there that, you know, they liked her best, you know, that she was the favorite. But anyway, after a lot of counseling, I'm really not angry about that anymore. <laughs> it's not a problem for me, not at all. Therefore, remember that you used to be Gentiles, called uncircumcised. And it was even worse than that. I'm joking about that, but really the Jews meant that, that you are not. God does not care about you. God cares about us. You're called uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. That's true. They weren't Israelites. You and I weren't Israelites, right? that you were excluded from citizenship and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. In other words, Jews understood that all that promises to Abraham, all the good stuff that God's going to do for humanity, oh, it was going to be done for the Jews and not for anybody else. And Paul says, you used to be excluded from that. You were, not, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. And here's one of the really most poignant passages. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. And let me translate that differently. You were in a hopeless and God-forsaken situation. Well, you know what? That's true today. Before we encountered Christ and the people that you know without Christ, God says you are truly without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's an interesting little play on words because in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, Gentiles or non-Jews are referred to very frequently as the people who are far away. That's not a kind thing to say. 
In other words, they were considered to be people who were far away from God because you don't even deserve to be close, and we're the people who are near. What he's saying is, Jesus has somehow affected this horizontal reconciliation. He took people that were far away and made them near. He's going to take people that are very separate, bring them back. Let me tell you how absolutely uh, vehement this was. Show you a picture of the temple. This is probably what it looked like in Jesus' time. This is a model. I put this on your handout because I think this will be meaningful once you kind of think this through a little bit. There were several areas of the temple. Inside the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go once a year. A little area outside that, only the priests could go. And the area outside that, only the Israelite men could go. And the area outside that, only Israelite men and women could go. But there was on the very, very outer parts called the court of the Gentiles. In other words, if you weren't Jewish, you could at least go in there. Remember, that's where Jesus got so angry that that's where the whole world could come in to see the temple, and what are they doing? They've got gift shops set up where you know, they're basically uh, cheating people out of their money. So he gets very angry. He says, look, this is the only place that the non-Jews can come, and what do you think they think about God when they come in here? So he got very angry about that. Well, that's in the court of the Gentiles. Well, between the court of the Gentiles and the area where only Israelites can go, uh, Josephus tells us that between those two enclosures, it was in that stone wall, there was an inscription which told any foreigner, if you weren't an Israelite, if you went in there, you would die. Now, normally, you can't do that because in the Roman Empire, they pretty much let people do their own laws, but not capital punishment. That's why they take Jesus to Pontius Pilate, wanting him crucified, because they're not allowed to, to do capital punishment. They could flog Jesus, they can you know, put people in jail, they can do all kinds of stuff, but the Romans are like, hey, we'll, we'll dispense life and death. So that's why they did that. Here, though, they gave an exemption. One exemption to the Jews is that, okay, if anybody goes inside your temple, you can kill them, like like your sign says. That sign has been excavated. This sign is in Latin and it's in Greek. So obviously the non-Jews can read it. Those are the kind of languages of the time. And this is what it says. I mean, it's a little loosely translated, but it says, no stranger is to enter in here. Anybody caught will be responsible for their own death. In other words, on your own head, if you come in here, we're going to kill you and nobody is going to do anything about it. In fact, if you remember the incident back in Acts chapter 21, I'll tell you what was happening there. Paul comes back to Jerusalem. Jews are trying to kill him because he's just been out preaching the gospel and it's just driving them nuts because thousands and thousands and thousands of people are becoming Christian. But they're also spreading a lot of rumors about Paul that he's telling everybody, hey, you shouldn't follow the law of Moses anymore. In fact, he was telling them that no, the law of Moses doesn't save you, but he personally was still being an observant Jew. His point was, this isn't going to save me, but I don't want anything to get in the way. I'm trying to reach people for Christ. So that means I'm not allowed to eat certain things. I just won't eat certain things. Not a problem. But the rumor was that he was encouraging other people. So one day he goes into the temple and some people from the province of Asia, that's where Ephesus is, sees Paul and start making a big uproar and said, he brought foreigners into the temple into this area you're not supposed to. Well, he had a guy with him in Jerusalem named Trophimus, and Trophimus 
was from Ephesus, the place where he wrote this letter, and he wasn't a Jew. Well, Paul hadn't taken him in there, but these guys said, hey, probably did, and so they're going to kill him. I mean, they're about to kill Paul for this when he gets rescued by the Romans. So my point to you is, that's how serious it was. Now, imagine a place here where it said, look, only special people can go in that part of the church, and if your kid scampers over there, we're going to kill them. Needless to say, that generates a little hostility, right? Not exactly your welcome wagon, good, friendly neighbor kind of a policy. So there was a lot of uh, very tense situation, a lot of enmity, a lot of strife there. It reminds you a lot of today in the sense that we've always been about us and them. I mean, we talk to ourselves about how is Jesus going to cure the conflict in the world? And the first question is, why is there conflict in the world? Well, because we like doing us and them. It was Jews and the non-Jews. The Greeks had Greeks, and they looked down their nose at anybody that wasn't a Greek, called them a barbarian, not a polite term at that time. We still have us and them. Think about how polarized our politics are in America. Maybe never been quite as polarized as it is right now. Think about our situation in the world right now. You know, we think we're really, really civilized, but you know, just pick up the paper and you realize pretty quickly there's an awful lot of us and them, awful lot of conflict going on in the world. And the interesting question is, is there anything that can unite us? Is there anything that can really bring peace to the world? That's an interesting question, and different people have different answers. Well, Paul's answer, and the answer in Ephesians, is this. He goes on and he says, there was this dividing wall of hostility there, but he himself is our peace. In other words, Jesus Christ is our peace. He's made the two one, and he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And I'm not telling you that he's talking about that wall and that sign when he's writing this, but I'll tell you, he's seen that a lot of times. And it's a very visible wall that says only the special people go in and all the rest of you heathens stay out. And so he says, in a sense, what Christ did, he destroyed that wall and took the two and put them together. And it was a wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law with its commandments and regulations in his flesh. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So here again you see the idea of hostility and peace. And so you get the concept of reconciling. God, he's, God is going to reconcile the fact that we were dead. He's going to make us alive. He's going to reconcile the fact that we were far away and bring us close reconciling the fact that we had this wall of hostility and he's going to break that down and bring, it, uh, bring us together. But let's talk about peace for just a second. Because when we think of peace, can Jesus bring peace to the world? There's a Western idea and there's really an Eastern way of thinking, a Jewish way of thinking about this. A lot of times when we talk about peace, we would just like the absence of conflict. But what Jesus is talking about and what the Jews thought of as peace was much more than just the absence of conflict. It was much more the idea of well-being. That's a profound idea because when the New Testament talks about peace, that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace, it's not talking about the fact that I don't have conflict. It's talking about this positive attribute of having just this general sense and its powerful idea of well-being. For example, if you guys 
can remember the Berlin Wall. Remember that was put up between East and West Berlin and it was a visible wall, of, literally, of hostility. Remember what we used to call in the Cold War the limits of the uh, USSR and its allies and the other world? It was the Iron Curtain. In other words, you see the same thing? We think this is an ancient story about some temple in Jerusalem. We, we have exactly the same things today. That was a wall of hostility. And when it got torn down, we had peace of a sort. In other words, we had the absence of overt conflict. But I don't think anybody would argue that today we have real peace, real well-being. And I think it's a fair question. If Jesus brought peace, why is there still this enmity and conflict in the world. We'll talk about enmity and conflict in Christian denominations in a couple of weeks because I want to ask the fair question, if we're supposed to be united in Christ, why do we have so many denominations? But in this lesson, let's talk about a bigger issue. Is Jesus able to unite the world? Well, I'd really give you a good example of this. Uh, this idea of the difference between peace is the absence of conflict. So do we just need a really good negotiator or do we need something fundamentally different? Would be, for example, in your marriage. How many people do you know that say, uh, before you get married, say, listen, here's what I really want out of marriage. I just want a husband that just won't fight. You know, just won't fight with me. I don't want any conflict. I want, you know, what am I looking for? I'm looking for a yes man. That's what I really value in a husband. If he can just say, yes, dear, I don't care what the rest of his vocabulary is, right? I just don't want any conflict in this marriage. Well, that's nice to not have conflict, but most people aspire to something a little bit more, right? The idea of maybe a soulmate, the idea of we're going to be together, we're going to have a sense of well-being, we're going to, the two are going to become one, as opposed to, no, we're pretty much going to be separate, we're just going to try hard not to fight too much. Yeah, that's a pretty low bar for marriage, isn't it? Well, this is kind of the idea of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about when he says Christ brought peace, he isn't saying that he made everybody sign a treaty you know, that says we won't dislike each other or call each other names anymore. He's talking about actually fundamentally transforming it. The very same way we understand marriage, to fundamentally transform a relationship to where our interests are more than aligned, they actually one overtakes another. In the counseling ministries here at Crossings and everything we do in terms of uh, marriage, we use this passage in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4. Ron Mon, who heads up the counseling ministry here, this is kind of the, the signature verse. Listen to this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, in Christ, comfort from his love, participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a tendency to think that peace can come about through aligning self-interest. And when it comes to international politics, I'm a pragmatist or a realist or whatever that people like to call themselves today. I think aligning self-interest is a very good idea. And it can lead to, for a period of time anyway, an absence of conflict. But the scripture's talking about a whole lot more than that. And what you saw in the early church was a great example. 
You have people from all these nations who used to be Gentiles, people from Israel who hated them. I mean, there was total enmity. They come into the church and they put those things aside. They don't do it the moment, the first day they walk in. But going forward, you see people identifying themselves as followers of Christ instead of Parthians, Greeks, Romans, Jews. It was more than an absence of hostility. It was a uniting. And a key idea there is that the basis for peace, both personally and in the world, is in our reconciliation in Christ. Self-interest can never really unify us. Self-interest can stop wars. Balance of power politics is a great idea to keep war, nuclear war, from, uh, from breaking out. That's exactly what happened during the Cold War. It's what is being attempted to happen now with China and Russia, is trying to balance the power and self-interest in such a way that actual hostilities don't break out. But what you see happening in Christ is something of a completely different order of magnitude. God's not looking for a peace treaty between nations. God's looking for a marriage. You see the difference there in the idea of peace? That's the unifying idea that Paul's talking about here, what Christ affected. If Jesus just, just wanted to make peace on the earth in the sense we think about it, he doesn't need to die on the cross. He just needs to be Henry Kissinger on steroids. Right? He just needs to go out there and change the way people are thinking. But in the cross, by his blood, he affects something much more significant than that. The cross and what Christ did is the basis for our reconciliation. It's the only thing that really unifies us, which is a clue to answering our question, how do you bring about peace in the world? But Paul's not finished, though. He wants to talk, it goes on a little bit, because his point is that you can't affect reconciliation in the world with just me being saved by God. I've been saved by grace through faith, but it's not just about me. Jesus also broke down any possible barriers that we have, the walls of hostility between all the us's and all the them's in the world. He broke that all down by uniting us into one person in him for his sake. Does that make sense? So what you saw, that one body, is the church. That's a scary thought because the church, the body of Christ, that's another interesting phrase, isn't it? The body of Christ. The church is the model for the world. I don't know if you've thought about this, but why does God have a church? Well, obviously so that we can do services. You know? No, we have a church because that is the model for what peace is looks like. Does that make sense? The church is modeling reconciliation to the world. When people outside the church look at the followers of Christ, they see neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. Remember that passage? That's what it's talking about. You know, oh, I'm a Jew. No, I'm a Greek. No, I'm a Roman. Actually, in the church, we are Christ followers. And you see the strangest combinations. I've said this before, and, and uh, I really do mean this. You have fundamentally more in common with a Christian in Singapore than you do with the secular humanist in your workplace. Obviously, you don't have more in common in terms of language or in terms of which soccer team your kids play on, 
But when it comes down to fundamentally who you are and what you believe about life, you have far more in common with any follower of Christ anywhere in the world than the secular humanist in your workplace. I don't know if you've thought about that that way. And the reason for that is, is because Jesus Christ has effected this reconciliation in himself by what he has done. There's no amount of treaties, there's no amount of self-interest, there's no amount of balance of power politics that can affect people mixing like that. If you travel overseas and you go into a church and you say, I'm a follower of Christ, you will be welcomed. Think about how, how else that can happen. I mean, seriously, that's really, we take that for granted, that's really unusual. It's extremely unusual that that one thing could cause such a bond between us. So Paul is going to get at the answer of this question of how do we stop conflict in the world by describing how Jesus brought peace into the world and he brought peace to the church. But he not only, and he's going to go on, he says, okay, he affected reconciliation between me and God, right? And he affected reconciliation in this unbelievable way. I mean, who would have ever thought the church could actually be the church, right? Horizontally, he affected reconciliation vertically. It's really important in our thinking, we'll talk here in just a minute about how that applies to everything from immigration to politics to peace in the world. But I want to lay this groundwork that Paul lays here. So let's talk about the vertical reconciliation. So he creates this one body, which is the church, which means, all that means is, everybody who's united in Christ, followers of Christ, people whose only basis for unity is in what Jesus did to reconcile us. And this one body reconciled to God by the cross, and he put to death their hostility. Talks about the idea of Jesus on the cross. It's so much more than washing your sins away. I mean, that's really true. He is affecting something global and eternal in every dimension. Jesus doesn't intend to just get you to heaven. God's plan is way bigger than that. He wants us to affect real peace and reconciliation in the world now and going forward. So we've now also not only been reconciled to each other and given some unity, we've been reconciled to God. Tell you another story uh, about this, something I'm really familiar with from my childhood. Spankings. The way our household worked, and this now doesn't involve my sister who uh, lied about me so many times. This now involves my little brother and myself. So my little brother and I tended to get into misadventures, and the way it worked in our household back in that day was, have you ever heard these words? Wait till your father gets home dreaded, dreaded words. Because you knew you could push mom so far. And if you pushed mom so far and you disobeyed enough, mom might spank you. That was not a problem. She was far too kind and lifted far too few weights to really be able to make that a big deterrent. But if you were foolish enough, which my little brother was, daily, daily. If you were foolish enough to push her past that point, then it was, wait till your father gets home. Do you remember that feeling for the rest of the day? 
No one ever treated their mother better the rest of the day, hoping for a reprieve. We did that. You did that, right? You'd treat her so nicely, you'd be hoping that she'd forget or that you could make up for it, that you would go from being a child of wrath to a member of the household again. No, it just didn't happen. Every time my dad would come home, we could hear him talking downstairs. You think she's telling him? Yeah, she's going to rat us out. Yeah, of course she's telling him. They don't seem to have any secrets from each other. I don't understand this relationship. Anyway, so he'd come home, and then he'd come up, and by that time, we had several interesting strategies, by the way. My little brother decided the best strategy was pat his butt, right? So he tried everything from uh, books in his pockets, pretty obvious, you have to admit, but then he got really pretty slick, and he figured he could put towels down the back of his blue jeans. He tried everything deterrent, but I just remember feeling the dread of this hanging over your head, right? Well, and then nothing you do about it can really change that. That's kind of what Paul's talking about. He said, you know what? What Christ did not only reconciled us to each other and broke down these barriers, but we all had this huge sense of dread hanging over our head. I can still feel that. You guys must have been good, because none of you look like you can feel, oh, yeah, man, that's the worst feeling. But you just felt that sense of dread weighing you down, and you were, reconciliation would have been the best thing in the world, you know, and that we did have reconciliation right after the spanking. You know, it's like my dad would say things like this, and, you know, I, I learned, I'd say, I will never say this to my kids. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Yeah, no, that's just not true. I'm sorry. As a parent now, I understand emotional pain is real, but your kid is never going to believe that, right? So just let it go, you know? But afterwards, it was, I love you. This is, this is what's good for you. You need to learn discipline. Well, at the time, it didn't mean much. Looking back, it does, right? We became reconciled through that, but that period of dread was awful. So what Paul's saying is, he says, Jesus Christ not only reconciled us to each other, he took all that dread away and reconciled us to God. He says, for through him, by the way, have you noticed so far in Ephesians how often it says in him, through him, for him, always referring to Christ. In him we have reconciliation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It all comes back to everything for a Christian, the basis for any kind of unity is in Christ and the Christ event, what he has done. Well, Paul goes on and he says this, consequently, now there's a big contrast to what you used to be before. You are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So before, he said, we broke down the hostility for you to get along with each other, but now you actually are getting adopted into the family. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, you used to be children of wrath. Look where we are now. We're members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, the fundamental basis for this. He says, in him the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. Interesting thing about this is, and the, the key idea, and here's the Christian idea about peace and unity that's really different, is that it can only be affected in Christ. This has some interesting implications for immigration. 
uh, not the politics of immigration. You thought I was going to go there, didn't you? You thought, oh, this is going to be good. Going to get letters from 50% of the people. The politics of immigration are very interesting when you look at it. When you look at Europe and what they're doing with immigration, particularly with their low birth rate, America, we've had a radically different policy on immigration, but now the same dynamics are starting to catch up and you see it becoming a very contentious issue over about the past 20 years or so here. And so you see people dealing with this on the basis of self-interest, on the basis of what's good for my country. I don't condemn that. To a certain extent, a government has a social contract with us and indeed is supposed to look out for our best interests. But in the church, there is no immigration policy. There is no immigration crisis because in the church with followers of Christ, we are completely reconciled. Beautiful passage in James chapter two that talks about this. It says, in your churches, there shouldn't be a place where when the rich man comes in, he sits down front and you say, oh, I'll take care of you. When the poor man comes in, you say, oh, I'll go sit over there by the wall. He's using that as a metaphor. It's not just about money. It's about, you don't understand, in Christ, we are reconciled. We are all members of the family of God. We've been adopted into the household. In the church, there is no immigration policy. Every follower of Christ belongs. That's why, for example, when you go to Crossings Clinic, or any Christian clinic, I would hope, it doesn't make any difference what your religion is. It doesn't make any difference what your color is. It doesn't make any difference what your politics are. Because we're trying, what are we doing as a body? We're trying to model what real unity and peace look like. We're not saying we're united to you because you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a humanist. We're not saying that, but what we are saying is let, me, let us show you the unity that we have. Is that you want to immigrate? You want to follow Christ? come on in. It's an open border. Does that make sense? So in the political world, Christians are going to probably have a little different view of this idea of immigration. Not so much from an economic standpoint as from a standpoint of what are we really about. Secular people are about looking out for the self-interest of themselves and their country. Christians have their citizenship in the kingdom of God we actually joined a much bigger group than that. Our first allegiance is to the interest of God. What are his interests in the world? Does that make sense? That's a fundamentally different way of thinking. Just think about that a little bit. Christ is the underpinning for our unity and peace. And we are not one because of Christ. We are one in Christ. And there's the answer to the question. Jesus Christ comes to bring peace to the world, so why isn't there peace in the world? Because Jesus Christ is not trying to do just the absence of hostility. You can't find peace because of Christ. We find peace in Christ, and the church is his exhibit A. And we need to be exhibit A. Does that make sense? We weaken God's case when we are not of one mind united in Christ. Acknowledging our differences, but in Christ, we have a bond that's stronger than anything else that's out there. Secular humanists, your humanist friends, and you have a lot of them, 
There are a ton of them in our country. I and mean, it's just, it is the predominant philosophy. Their thought on how you will unify and bring peace to the world is we will perfect humanity. You hear this all the time. The idea would be if we can get everybody educated to a certain level, if we can get everybody on the same economic footing, I mean, this is fundamentally what's behind any redistribution of wealth strategy, whether it's Marxism in the last century, whether it's progressive thinking in this century. I'm not speaking politically here, I'm just telling you, here's the philosophy behind it. We can achieve peace and unity through the perfecting of humanity. We must level the economic playing field, education. Those are, I'm not telling you those are necessarily bad things, but the philosophy behind it is that's how we're going to achieve peace. The only exhibit that I have to rebut that is the entire 20th century. I mean, it just, it just, there's just no way. I mean, if you stop and think about that, that is a fundamentally flawed argument for Christians. We talked last week about we need help to be reconciled to God because fundamentally we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. I think that's a very accurate view of human nature. I think the humanist view is human nature is we're all basically good people, we just had some bad breaks, is unrealistic. It is very opposed to Christian thinking. So we see unity in Christ and we model it in the church. Humanists see unity in perfecting humanity, and I'm still looking for good models. I would argue that the most peaceful place you see in the world is the church, and I'm talking about the worldwide followers of Christ. So you, we have very different ideas about how we're going to bring peace into the world and what it's going to take to bring peace into the world. Let me stop for a second and see if there are any questions, because I do still want to talk about Israel uh, briefly. No questions about peace? Good. You guys have figured that out. Here's the challenge then, before we move on to Israel for you and me, is we have to actually live out what it looks like to be one in Christ. We have to actually understand that, you know what, I was dead. Think about what we just studied, Ephesians chapter 2. I was dead in my transgressions and sins, but completely by his grace, I have been saved through faith through trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. On that cross, he not only reconciled me to God, saved me, he broke down the barriers of hostility to every foreign person in this world and said, if you both follow me, you are united in Christ. And not only that, he took all of us followers of Christ and he said, you don't need to worry about what's going to happen when dad comes home because you have been reconciled to him. Beautiful passage, you should memorize this. Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly the same message as what he's saying. That's the Christian idea of what has happened to us individually and together as believers, and now we're going to model that for the world. That is the answer to how Jesus, that is God's plan to bring peace on earth, is when we unite in Christ, in what he has done. I'm not talking about when we all start behaving right, when we all start following the law, no. When we trust in what Jesus has done and says, not my will but yours, it's not about me anymore, I'm following you, now there's a real basis for real peace. Does that make sense? That's a powerful idea 
for today. That's what you and I believe as Christians. That's why, if you've ever wondered what the Great Commission was all about, was it so God could get attendance numbers up? Does God take attendance? No, he doesn't. The Great Commission, go out into all the world, teaching everyone to be disciples, to follow me, right? Why is he happening? He said, that's my plan for peace in the world. And you and I are charged with doing it. Make sense? Talk briefly about Israel. Well, here's a little sub-question. Well, since we have been reconciled, Gentiles and Jews, does that mean that Christians should support the nation of Israel? It's a very interesting question, and it breaks down in this way. Now we're moving into a more secular realm. Now we're not talking about Christians. Should you support Christians? Of course. Would you support your brother or your sister? Hey, I even love the sister that lied about me, all right? That's just real love. Of course you would. We've been adopted into God's family. I mean, we're family, of course. What are you talking about? We feel that bond. Now we're talking about politically, about the people who were chosen for a period of time, a period in history. We as Christians, to what extent should we support Israel? If you think, and there are kind of two ways of thinking about this. One is, a lot of Christians say, yes, we should politically support Israel because God still has a role for them to play. In other words, we are part of God's family, and all Israel is part of God's family. Jews definitely believe that part because part of uh, the uh, Talmud basically says that all Israel has a share in the world to come. In other words, all Jews go to heaven. Basically, that's a rough translation. All Jews go to heaven because we're still God's people. What Christians teach is that, no, our unity is not because we've had some dealings with God. The only real basis for our unity is in Christ. But some people would say, understand that, agree with that. But because of their role and their potential future role in the end times, we should support Israel, that God is going to use the nation of Israel to catalyze certain events. And if you think about it that way, then that would tend to drive your politics. Some people say we should support Israel for traditional reasons in the sense that they have been the people of God. We have a kinship with them. We share some of the same scriptures with them. On the flip side, other people would say, no, we don't necessarily need to follow Israel, largely be, or support Israel, largely because of practical considerations in the sense that everything Israel does is not right and that our allegiance is to what's right, not necessarily to any one country and that we will be united with the Jews of the world the same way we'll be united with the Muslims of the world and the humanists of the world, and we'll find that unity in Christ. And so you do see Christians divided over this issue of taking this unity in our faith and putting it into the political realm. And it depends largely, seems to divide in America anyway, around what you see the Jews' role in the end times being and if God still has a role for them, and consequently, we're going to cooperate in some sense in the end times. But no matter what you believe as a Christian, no matter what your theology of the end times is, what your theology about Israel is, there's no disagreement that the only real unity that we have is in Christ, contrary to this kind of ecumenical movement, which wants to say that everybody's religion is a way to get to God. And you don't really see that as a very unifying force, do you? Because it's not true. 
and it isn't, hasn't been a unifying force in the world. The most significant unifying force in the world has been the church, and it is the model for unity. Questions? Good? All right, so fundamental questions we start with is why didn't Jesus bring peace to the world? He did. It's called the church. Just make the church bigger, and we'll solve this problem. Is there any hope for an end of conflict in the world? No, there's no hope because Jesus himself teaches that not everyone will believe this. Not everyone will trust in him. Not everybody's going to go to heaven. But is it God's plan to progress the kingdom? Yes, you and I are called to be faithful and bring as many people into the body of peace as we can bring into the body of peace. But we should reasonably not expect that. But that's okay because, you know, that's not why Christians do those things. We don't go spread the gospel so that we can have world peace. That's actually not our motive. If that happens, that's awesome, but that's not our motive. We don't actually feed people to eradicate hunger in the world. We don't give people health care to eradicate disease in the world. That's actually, and, and this is a very freeing thought. I really want you to embrace this. You don't have to cure world hunger. You just have to feed everybody around you that needs it. You don't have to bring world peace. You just need to reconcile and bring everybody that you come in contact. Does that make sense? It's kind of like Mother Teresa said. We weren't called to be successful. We were called to be faithful. And that's where we trust God that this works out exactly the way he planned for it to work out. And I find that very freeing. And so as you go about your life this week, what I'd like you to remember is this. Again, incredibly encouraging. Is that God and you are okay. Because of what Christ did, you've been saved. You've been rescued by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That you have a bond of unity in Christ. That is the foundation of what unifies you to every other Christ follower in the world. And we live that peace out in this body called the church. That you have no threat of punishment hanging over your head you're not trying to make God happy. You're not trying to act really good so that when he gets home at the end of the day, he might forget about all the bad. You don't have any of that stuff hanging over your head. We are completely reconciled to God. And when you stop and think about that and you feel that way, that's a great way to start every day. And now all of a sudden, what God asked us to do, let's go be compassionate to people that don't deserve it. Let's go forgive the people that are just not very forgivable. Let's go feed the people that need it. Let's go share with the people that, that don't have what we have, you think, this is not a problem at all. I don't have the burden of fixing all these problems. I'm just going to go live out of my peace, peace with each other and peace with God. So this week, I really want you to focus on this idea of peace. You have peace with God. You have peace with each other. Your job is simply to go model it to the rest of the world. So please do not run over each other in the parking lot on the way out. All right. It's just a bad, bad PR for us. Okay. Thanks. Flick will be here next week. Thank you guys.